1: Ah, Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, he's back again, a friend of ours. He's a UNC Chapel Hill grad, but for the purposes of this conversation, we are not going to hold that against him. Uh, we usually talk uh, environmental kind of stuff with him, but we're thrilled to have him back. We're going to talk a little bit about online things. Elijah at great to see you again, my friend. How are you?
0: I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing?
1: Hanging in there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I love this piece. I told you when we were prepping it, uh, you wrote in free the people about um, online stuff. Let, let me go at you with this though. I kind of recoil when people start talking about online and big tech and things like this, and then they go straight to civil liberties. Cause that almost feels like a big jump. You know what I mean? Like, well, civil liberties is, you know, the civil rights movement and equal protections and equality like that. But then when I calm down and I just think about it for a second, I'm also one of those guys who advocate that the internet is one of the greatest tools of freedom we've ever had. And I believe that I think it's one of the most important tools for freedom that we've ever developed as humans. So if I really believe that and I'm consistent with that, then yeah, you kind of got to make that leap, don't you? In some ways.
0: I definitely believe that. And I think it's more true than ever when so much of our political discourse and frankly, so many of our like social connections are happening increasingly online, um, and a lot of people, for example, don't even engage in politics outside of the Internet. You know, there's a whole swath of people who are unanonymous or have anonymous accounts or are too maybe nervous to really get engaged, at like the pol- more public political levels. So they use the Internet as a really important platform for having a much more uh, expansive number of people who can, like, contribute their voices.
1: Yeah. And I'm one of them because, like, look, I talk. You know, because I do this show, I do other things. I talk a lot of politics online. I almost never talk politics at home in my real life, yep. especially with my family and in my home when I'm just we we almost never talk politics. it's It's not necessarily a rule. It's just the way I do it. That's segmented. I, that's what I do for work, and I don't do it there. Uh, of course, other people do it the other way. But then again, I don't have Facebook, so because I'm smart, and that's like i say, like I have family and friends and I want to keep loving them, so I'm not gonna have Facebook. That's exactly where you get into some of this, though, is because, you know, Facebook has kind of its own culture. Twitter has its own culture. Instagram has a little bit of its own culture. This isn't just big tech. This isn't just social media. We use those big words. This is a very fragmented, balkanized kind of thing. But more and more of our public sphere, more and more of our dialogue, you just talked about it, more and more of our politics and media and interactions are going through these mediums.
0: Yeah, definitely, and I think it's why. As I, I taught, so the center of my piece is around the Department of Homeland Security's uh, misinformation, disinformation campaigns. And the reality is, if it didn't matter, DHS wouldn't care. They wouldn't be doing this program at all. So the fact they're even doing it, I think, is pretty indicative of where we're at and like why it matters, and how that, and the stakes that are involved. If they view it as for in their sort of from their perspective as a real threat to democracy and truth.
1: Yeah. Elijah Gallet joining us. Here's the background on this. What happened was back during COVID people filed uh, reporters doing their job, by the way, filed a whole bunch of freedom of information act requests. Those usually take time, of course, especially during something like a crisis, there's time sensitive things. So you have to wait until certain things before it's released, but you are entitled as an American citizen and journalist uses freedom of information act reports. So they got all this stuff from DHS from the last uh, three years or so from these freedom of information. Now, to be fair to the government, some of this got way blown out of proportion because here's what happens. And you can speak to this cause you went through it for the piece. By the way, there's a lot of links in your piece. Make sure you read all that for yourself. That tells me it's a good piece. I love when It's got a lot of stuff I can read and not. part of what happens with this information. And to be fair to the government, this is why it's so hard to deal with this. Something like COVID is something hits the internet. It's bad and it's wrong and everybody knows it's wrong. But then five days later, it kind of fixes itself because the ecosystem is like, well, no, that's wrong. And it comes all the way back around. Mm -hmm. Well, government regulation doesn't work that fast. So by the time they get around to regulating misinformation, misinformation is already kind of taking care of itself. That's kind of the core problem that they're dealing with. The government does not to be fair to the government. I'm going to bash them here in a minute. But to be fair to them, they don't really have a tool to deal with something like that, do they? So they end up going to the sledgehammer of regulation. Is that a good way to kind of encapsulate the problem here?
0: I Actually, I think that's a great way to talk about this. Um, You know, the nuances and particularities of online speech are just not necessarily a great match for government uh, regulation. They're just not going to have the precision and the nuance and the context to really do this well.
1: Yeah, I think so as well. Now, that's where you start getting into messier areas. Is it malfeasance? Is it bias? Is it the government putting their thumbs on the scale? I think COVID is almost a bad example to use for this because nobody handled this really well, but you do have a public health crisis. So the government's going, oh, we have to fix this because people are dying. The problem, of course, is everybody, you know, if you can do it in an emergency, you can do it the rest of the time. How did it hit you when you started looking at this? Because, again, the government has a public health role. They need to get information out. Where do you put your line when you start looking through this? Because, again, there's a lot of gray area here. Where does this go from just the mass nations of government to, oh, this is a problem that needs to be fixed and addressed?
0: Yeah, I think for me, when I was looking through the report, especially in regards to the stuff around COVID misinformation, I very much framed it around exper- You know, the early days of COVID when there was a lot changing all the time. And so there were honestly sometimes mixed or conflicting reports coming from, uh, you know, federal public health officials. And this was not necessarily their fault. You know, there were still, it was very early in the days of the pandemic. Uh, I generally try not to fault people for how they respond in the initial days, because we really didn't know anything. But for me, that kind of, for me, it was like difficult to square having this really strong, strict regulation alongside the evolving information that we were gathering. Right. And part of that, information gathering was happening through uh, organic discourses online of people bringing in different types of experts who maybe did disagree with the CDC, for example, and maybe they were wrong about some stuff, but it was still important to have those voices there. And on top of that, I think this kind of really, um, really harsh regulation only increases suspicion of public health officials and of the uh, generally accepted consensus line on things like vaccines and uh mask wearing and lockdowns and all that uh everything that happened right like even from the public health officials perspective they should be weary of using these really harsh tactics because it only breeds further suspicion and people who are prone to be suspicious about these agencies
1: Yeah, Elijah Gullett joining us. Let's go to the big tech section of this because big tech's relationship with government is really the core of this. It's not just people yelling online about bias and whatever. The government and big tech are going to have to have a relationship. Okay. What's that relationship going to be? That's the heart of this. You get into this in your piece and you use Facebook, previous meta. I can't say meta with a straight face, but Facebook and meta, you use them as the example here where. We have seen for the better part of a couple of years now, the the Facebook meta people go up, they sit before these hearings and they talk about regulation. They know that some kind of regulation is coming. Let's have a grown folk talk here real quick. They're trying to get ahead of it so that they get a say in the regulation so that the regulation is favorable to them. That's the background of all this. So now when you go and look at the information you're looking at in these freedom of information releases is, okay, is it? appropriate for somebody who is trying to get themselves regulated to their benefit to have a say in the regulation. And then when you put that with this information is where you start getting into, wait a minute, the government and big tech do not need to be cozy partners in this. Yes. Tech needs to check with the government on things like, Hey, are we in compliance here? Is this information accurate? That's one thing, but they don't need to be having a friendship relationship of like, Oh, well, you don't really. Here's Facebook. This is simplified, but Facebook is going to Congress, going, you don't really understand this, but we understand it really well. So we will write this regulation for you. And that's where this really people go, wait a minute, this isn't okay. This is where there can be some real malfeasance and where the worst parts of government, like cronyism and things like that, can really start to play.
0: Yeah. And this is this part of my piece was really the hardest part for me to write out clearly. you know, just for some background on my own thought processes when I was working on this was, I think the situation doesn't fit super well into a lot of our traditional theories of how, like, you know, uh, government versus business or the private sector work, right? And I think there were a lot of, um, not bad analyses out there that came out after, briefly out of this report, but I think they were missing things. They wanted to kind of shove it into either this is an issue of protecting the free market, Or an issue of, um, for example, from some, and I mentioned them in the piece, some uh, right-wing commentators using this as evidence that there's some, like, broader collusion or regime almost trying to suppress their type of speech, for example. And I wanted to really draw that out and show how complicated the relationship is and how this isn't exactly a friendship. They're not necessarily, the two parties aren't necessarily at war with one another, right? Uh, I was trying to perceive it as like, as you said, this kind of complex relationship that regulation breeds, uh, that cronyism breeds, it breeds bad incentives that people act on uh, for their own self-interest.
1: Yeah. And you take it to the angle of we should be skeptical of not just the big government and we shouldn't be just skeptical of big tech. We need to be skeptical of the increasing regulations of the social media companies in general for that very reason. Um, it's a good line in your piece. I'll just say it to you for the point purposes of discussion, but you say we ought to rein in executive powers and provide more leeway to private companies to compete against themselves to determine the best content moderation society. The reason people come back from that is because that's messy. That's ugly. That's not neat. That takes, we're seeing it with Twitter and Elon Musk right now. It's messy. It's not neat and clean and people get uncomfortable. However, any other relationship in your life, if you have an interpersonal relationship, you know, working those things out or not, and you can clean and messy. If we go, well, that's just icky and I don't want to deal with it, let the government deal with it. That's not only going to breed all the problems we just talk about. It's also kind of an abrogation of our responsibilities of citizens is like, hey, we can't complain about big, bad regulation if we just go, well, I don't care. Just make it go away so I don't have to hear about it. Do you see that as kind of a prevailing attitude with some of this? Because I start seeing that creeping and then that's where you start losing some of your freedoms is that kind of apathy.
0: Yeah, I think people really like it is really hard for people to separate their own personal feelings and opinions about other people's viewpoints or things that they, you know, for example, might consider terrible and things I consider terrible. Right. There's plenty of stuff on the Internet I think is awful. And in some perfect world where the government worked the way I wished it did. I would you know happily have them ban some things right but the reality is we live in a very complex world where there's a lot of unintended consequences of government interference and we can't make policy based on our views of what we wish the government was like or what we wish society was like or how we wish people were we have to Uh, create policies based on what we know is true based on the fact that people are messy and they don't necessarily respond to these type forms of speech suppression or bans with, you know, uh, just simply changing their viewpoints or stop talking about them. That's not what they're going to do. They're going to find ways to get around that. And also in the case of these major corporations, when they get into this, you know, the, on one hand, policymakers might want to hope that if they increase these regulations, that it's going to be a genuine check on the powers of these really large social media companies. But in fact, it is oftentimes, as I mentioned the piece with Facebook, for example, an opportunity for them to get ahead of the rest of the game, get ahead of their their own competitors to help shape those policies in their favor um, in ways that may disadvantage their competition.
1: Yeah, Elijah Gallet. Let's wrap it up talking about it this way though. We have to have accountable government. The only way we have accountable government is to have information about what our government's doing. You had a list of things in here you talked about that was um, at issue with this particular document dump. Um, Russian interference in elections. They interfere. They try to interfere in every election. Let's all be adults here. But, you know, what does that entail? Because, that again, that's a messy, tough conversation. Uh, COVID-19 we know about. Biden's botched withdrawal from Afghanistan. I know that was a personal one with me. I was upset with that. I'd like to know more about the decision-making process there. Things like um when the government gets involved with racial unrest, all these sorts of things. We know we know from history the civil rights movement there's a lot of stuff that was buried and not covered. When we have a Freedom of Information Act for a couple of years from now, what do you think we could do so that the next time we do this it looks a little better or it looks a little more accountable? what can folks do in their conversations either online or just interpersonal to kind of put the ball forward on government accountability and go, look, this information is vital for us to know what our government is doing and the government can't be colluding with these big tech companies. There has to be some sunlight here for accountability to be able to stay in play.
0: Yeah. I think the biggest thing is congressional checks on administrative and executive powers here. That's going to be the first and foremost thing is Congress doing its job, one of its core jobs, which is to actually do legislating and not just hand it off to our executives and unelected bureaucrats in places like the DHS. Um, This will involve putting limits on these types of rules and like making sure there's at least some oversight when they're trying to put in, implement these new rules around uh, content moderation or their interactions with these big tech, tech companies. On top of that, I actually think there's something each of us just regular folks should be doing, even if we're not policymakers, right? I think a return and a recognition of the importance of civil society and civilness and civility in our uh, public discourse matters a lot. And that even when you disagree, it is not necessarily an invitation for you to call on the government to use force to stop someone from doing what what someone's doing, even if you think it's despicable speech, right? We all have an obligation to understand those distinctions and draw those lines and ensure that, you know, we can continue to live in a free society, both at the legal level and at a broader, more cultural level. I got to tell you,
1: Elijah, when the best answer you can give me is I think Congress is going to be our best option. I get nervous, (laughs) Um, but I'm being a little facetious. The fact of the matter is most of the problems in our government right now is our dysfunctional Congress because it all revolves around them because they're not they don't only make laws, but they also have the power of the purse and they are also supposed to have oversight over the other branches of government. And pretty much all our major problems come from a dysfunctional Congress. So you are not wrong, sir. You have a good point there. Elijah Gallat. this is an excellent piece. There's a lot in here. There's a couple things I took contention with. We threw you some hard questions. You handled them well. Make sure you read the entire piece. We're going to link to the whole thing, freethepeople.org lot of links in here. There's a lot of details in here and nuances you're going to need to work for. Do your homework, folks. Elijah, really appreciate the time. Let folks know where they can keep up with you until we get you back on. This is what, your third time on here? We're getting to be a regular. We like talking to you. Let folks know where they can find you and keep up with you until they see you on Hertel again.
0: Yep. You can find me at Market Urbanist with an S at the end on Twitter. I also have a Substack where I occasionally post, usually things related to urban policy issues, but a range of other topics, including book reviews at youngurbanist.substack.com. That's young with a U instead of an OU. So,
1: yeah, I got to be all fancy like that. Uh, I already talked to him too. Going to talk some more environmental and conservation stuff. He does really good work in that realm. Uh, Elijah Gollett, always enjoy talking, sir. Appreciate the time.
0: Thank you for having me. Yes. Sir.
2: Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you.